0: I'm in the mood for real change Bernie is the one for me Government for and by the people Bernie is the one for me I'm in the mood for real change Bernie is the one for me Taking big money out of politics Bernie is the one for me Bernie, Bernie, Bernie is the one for me He should be our next president Bring back democracy I'm in the mood for real change Bernie's the one for me Healthcare's a right, not a privilege Bernie's the one for me Well, I'm in the mood for real change Bernie's the one for me Saving social security Bernie's the one for me Oh, Bernie, Bernie Bernie is the one for me. He should be an ex president. Bring back democracy. Well, I'm in the mood for real change. Bernie is the one for me. No more NAFTA or TPP. Bernie is the one for me. Well, I'm in the mood for real change. Bernie is the one for me. Bring back jobs to the USA. Bernie is the one for me. Oh, Bernie, Bernie, Bernie is the one for me. He should be our next president. Bring back democracy. Well, I'm in the mood for real change. Bernie is the one for me. Equal pay for everyone. Bernie is the one for me. Who oh, I'm in the mood for real change, Bernie is the one for me. No more corporate welfare chains, Bernie is the one for me. It's yes, Bernie, Bernie, Bernie's the one for me. He should be our next president, bring back democracy. Will I'm in the mood for real change? Bernie is the one for me. Free education for everyone, Bernie is the one for me. Said I'm in the mood for real change, Bernie is the one for me. No more denying climate change, Bernie is the one for me. Will Bernie, Bernie, Bernie is the one for me. He should be an ex-president, bring back democracy. Now I'm in the mood for real
1: And that was Real Change, Bernie is the One for Me by Nick Seeger and John Gurney. If you're looking for that, you can find that on YouTube. Search for Alice Seeger on YouTube. And at the end of the program, we'll hear The Burn by Bert DeBard. Greetings and welcome back to Bernie 2016. This is an independent podcast established to follow and comment on Bernie Sanders' candidacy for President of the United States. This podcast is completely independent of any candidate, party, or PAC. If you want to send me a message, you can reach out at BernieUS2016 at com, or you can follow me on Twitter at BernieUS2016. If you want to check out some back episodes or some other links that I have collected, you can check those out at bernie-2016.com So this is the first uh, podcast I have recorded in a week. The last recording was shortly before the Michigan primary and the Mississippi, Mississippi primary. This recording, similarly, is on the eve of five primaries we've got uh missouri illinois ohio florida and north carolina all going to the polls tomorrow and i'll have some more stories about that in a minute but let's take a look at the results from last week as widely expected hillary clinton won the state of mississippi by a major landslide Hillary got 82.6% of the votes, and Bernie got 16.5% of the votes, leaving Bernie uh, as a viable candidate, which means he gets a small share of the delegates that are uh, split proportionately by the vote from the state of Mississippi. And going into Michigan— Bernie, the average poll had Bernie down in Michigan by more than 20 points on the day before the primary in Michigan. But Bernie didn't give up and Bernie's supporters didn't give up based on those polls. And in the end, Bernie Sanders won the state of Michigan in an enormous upset over Hillary Clinton. It was a squeaker. He won by 1.5% of the votes. But this is where winning is so enormously important. Even if the final results are very, very close, the delegates in Michigan were split virtually evenly because the vote was so close. But that win... And especially that come from behind when everyone expected Bernie to be down, you know, in the neighborhood of 20 points. Or if he had made some gains, you know, being down in the double digits at a minimum. And to come back and to actually win that state was a huge boost for the campaign and for all of us supporting Bernie Sanders. All of the media the next day was about Bernie's upset win in Michigan. Uh So it really gave the the campaign a big boost um in the end for the day, Hillary still came out ahead in delegate count, so still a big challenge for their campaign to start to catch up in the delegate count. Hillary is ahead by somewhere in the neighborhood of two hundred delegates at this point. Those are the actual pledge delegates, not those super delegates that won't vote until July and so there's still still some big big challenges for the campaign but this really kept the door open for Bernie Sanders to turn the uh turn the race around and start to win more and more states and start to eat away at that delegate lead that uh Hillary has so huge huge thanks to everybody out there fighting for Bernie and getting their friends and family involved, reaching out, phone banking, doing everything they can to get people out to vote for Bernie Sanders. I had a small connection to the vote in Michigan. One of my wife's friends from high school uh, lives in Michigan now and actually posted the day before the Michigan primary that she was really torn and she did not know who she was going to vote for in the Democratic primary. And a number of her friends were posting on her Facebook wall and kind of chipping in with some things that they thought. And my wife sent her friend an article about Honduras uh that article that I read on the last episode and in the end my wife's friend did vote for Bernie Sanders I can't say for sure what what tipped her over and what uh made her come down on that side but every everything that we do every time we reach out and offer our thoughts and offer our opinions and share information on Bernie Sanders, we definitely have the opportunity to have influence on the results of this election. So, on to the stories for this week. And this first story is from United in Defense of the Water. And their site can be found at United in Defense of the Water. .wordpress.com And this is by Barbara With W-I-T-H United in Defense of the Water officially endorses Bernie Sanders for president. Among the positions he takes are he believes in combating climate change to save the planet by facing down the abuse of corporate power that is destroying us. Right now we have an energy policy that is rigged to boost the profits of big oil companies like Exxon, BP, and Shell at the expense of average Americans. CEOs are raking in record profits while climate change ravages our planet and our people. All because the wealthiest industry in the history of our planet has bribed politicians into complacency in the face of climate change. Enough is enough. It's time for a political revolution that takes on the fossil fuel billionaires, accelerates our transition to clean energy, and finally puts people before the profits of polluters, unquote. And that is a quote that they posted from Senator Bernie Sanders. And here are some of the other reasons that United in Defense of the Water endorsed Bernie Sanders, Bernie called for the resignation of Governor Snyder in Michigan for the Flint disaster. He received a 100% rating in 2015 from the League of Conservation Voters. He co-sponsored the Save Oak Flat Act with Senator Tammy Baldwin. He created the Rebuild America Act of 2015, which sets aside $3 billion a year to improve our national parks, monuments, heritage areas, and landmarks for current and future generations to enjoy. He voted yes on protecting ocean, coastal, and Great Lakes ecosystems. He voted for the Water Resources Development Act of 2013, which would have ensured the sustainable and healthy management of oceans through increased research. He secured a strong victory for his home state by protecting the Missisquoi and Trout Rivers under the Wild and Scenic Rivers designation and he worked to create the public-use waterfront park on the shores of Vermont's largest city. What could have been developed as luxury 18-story condominiums and a 150-room hotel became a walkable, mixed-use park, including a sailing center and marina, science center, bike path, and public beach. We believe Bernie Sanders is the best qualified to take on the abuse of corporate power. He has refused big PAC money, except for the National Nurses United who have endorsed Senator Sanders because he, quote, aligns perfectly with nurses on the most critical problems facing our nation, from income inequality to guaranteeing health care to holding Wall Street and corporations to account to opening the doors to college education for everyone to racial justice to the climate crisis. So that is... Uh, the endorsement of Bernie Sanders by United in Defense of the Water. And this next story is from Politico dot com by Nolan D. McCaskill. Bernie Sanders' campaign filed a federal lawsuit Tuesday against Ohio Secretary of State John Husted, accusing him of trying to bar young voters from participating in the state's March 15 primary. Specifically, the Sanders campaign alleges Husted is an unlawfully blocking 17-year-old voters from casting ballots next week. The suit says Husted, Husted's action would not only, quote, arbitrarily discriminate against young minority voters, but also violate the due process and equal protection provisions of the 14th Amendment. It is an outrage that the Secretary of State in Ohio is going out of his way to keep young people, significantly African-American young people, Latino young people, from participating, Sanders said in a statement. Ohio permits 17-year-olds who will turn 18 before the general election to vote in primaries. In December, however, Husted published a revised election manual that ruled such voters ineligible during the primary Sanders has staked his campaign on driving young people and other less regular voters to the polls. Quote, I want to do everything that I can to encourage people to participate, Sanders said. Unfortunately, in the state of Ohio, there is an effort by the Secretary of State to do exactly the opposite. And that story was from March 8. And here is... A follow-up story, and this one is from March 11 by Daniel Strauss, and this was also published at Politico.com. Senator Bernie Sanders notched a potentially significant win on Friday evening when an Ohio judge issued an order allowing 17-year-old voters to participate in the state's presidential primary on Tuesday. Franklin County Common Pleas Court Judge Richard Fry ruled that 17-year-old voters who turn 18 by the day of the November election can vote in the primary, though not on ballot issues or for any contest that would actually elect someone directly to office. The ruling trumps a recent move by Secretary of State John Husted, a Republican, to block 17-year-old voters in the state from participating on Election Day on the grounds that the teens would be voting for delegates, not nominating candidates directly. In December, Husted revised the state's election manual, which previously allowed the practice. Fry's ruling came in response to a suit by nine 17-year-old registered Ohio voters who disputed Husted's interpretation of the law. The ruling is a victory for Sanders' campaign, which separately filed a federal lawsuit on Tuesday against Husted's order. The Sanders campaign accused Husted in the suit, which was put on hold Friday by a federal judge, of trying to stop younger voters from exercising their democratic rights. The Sanders campaign attorney, Brad Deutsch, said the ruling was a major victory. Quote, this is a huge victory for 17-year-olds across Ohio. Their votes for presidential nominees will now count when they vote on either Tuesday or over the weekend in early voting. So a victory for the 17-year-old voters in Ohio uh, along the same lines of the lawsuit that Sanders filed, not not directly in response to that lawsuit, but in response to a similar suit. The judge ruled in favor of voting in the Democratic uh, nomination primary um by 17-year-olds who will turn 18 by the time the general election happens in November. And this next story is also from Politico.com. This is by Annie Carney. Hillary Clinton's charge that Bernie Sanders opposed the auto bailout was criticized as a cheap shot for telling only part of the story. But Clinton's campaign manager said Wednesday the attack line is not going away. Quote, her point is you can't just be with the auto industry when it's convenient. Campaign manager Robbie Mook said on a conference call with reporters Wednesday following Sanders' stunning upset in Michigan. Quote, when the auto industry really needed Senator Sanders, he wasn't there. That is a fact that we believe voters need to know. We'll continue to talk about it. In 2008, Sanders voted for the standalone auto bailout, which did not pass. But he later opposed using TARP funds to bail out the auto industry because those funds were also earmarked for bailing out financial institutions. That measure passed. And I think even that reading of or that uh, comment on that particular vote by Sanders, I think, even is heavily skewed. From other stories that I have read, and I certainly don't have the deepest knowledge of this particular legislation, but from other stories that I have read, at the time of the TARP funds vote, it was not clear that that portion of the money would be earmarked for the auto industry and that that came a bit later. In any event, even if it was clear that there was auto industry money in the TARP Funds Bailout, the TARP Funds, and that's T-A-R-P, and off the top of my head I can't recall exactly what that stands for, but the TARP Funds were the huge bailout for the banks, for the banks that really destroyed the economy and destroyed so many lives, who people who lost their life savings and lost their homes in uh, in the recession. Um, So that was the bill that the funding was either rolled into or even possibly later carved out of that Bernie Sanders opposed. So back to the story. At the Flint debate last Sunday, Clinton pulled out the unexpected attack line in an attempt to damage Sanders ahead of the big primary in the industrial working class city. But Sanders' campaign fought aggressively to explain his full position and ultimately the attack didn't appear to sink in. The disappointing results in Michigan mook said taught the campaign that it must quote work even harder to amplify Secretary Clinton's economic arguments unquote noting that she will focus on her plans to create good paying manufacturing jobs as she looks to three industrial contests that go to the polls on March 15 Illinois Ohio and Missouri quote, we're aligning this campaign to amplify that message as loudly and clearly as we can. He said, and I hope they do. I hope Hillary starts talking even more about her programs and her plans and her record and, uh, cuts back on talking about Bernie's votes and Bernie's plans and Bernie's record I think that uh, everyone will be better off if Hillary starts focusing on putting forward. And I know that she is doing this, but what I see and hear mostly are the elements of her campaign, including her own appearances and the appearances of her family, where the media picks up and expresses the lines of attack against Bernie much more so, much more loudly, much more often than Hillary's uh, support for her own platform and her own ideas. So on to the next story, and this is honestly really not the uh, Politico podcast, but this next story also comes from Politico, oh no, perhaps it doesn't, I am looking at the wrong headline, aha, on to another source. So this story is from TalkingPointsMemo.com, and this is written by Connor Dinan, D-I-N-A-N, Senator Bernie Sanders has pulled ahead of former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton by two points in Illinois, according to a CBS YouGov poll released Sunday. The poll showed support for Sanders at 48% in the state, while Clinton stood at 46%. This is the first CBS YouGov poll conducted in the state, and the first to show the socialist insurgent overtaking the Democratic frontrunner there. But it is consistent with recent polling, which has shown the race tightening in Illinois following Sanders' upset victory in Michigan. Most polls show Clinton remaining ahead, however. She clocks double-digit leads in Florida. TMM, TPM's poll tracker average shows Clinton up by a hair in the state. At uh, Sorry, this is, seems to have jumped to a different thought after the double-digit leads in Florida. But on my sheet here, there's no space between those two. Uh, TPM, and that's Talking Points memo's poll tracker average, shows Clinton up by a hair in the state, and that would be the state of Illinois, at 47.7%, to Sanders, 47%. The CBS YouGov poll was carried out from March 9 to 11 by Internet Survey. This is something I learned fairly recently. Um, YouGov polling, Y-O-U-G-O-V. So YouGov is a site that does surveys on a wide variety of topics. And currently one of those topics is the um, elections, the primary elections and eventually I'm sure they will turn to the general elections and anybody can sign up on yougov to receive polls. And what you do is you sign up there and they will email you invitations to polls and you have absolutely no control over what polls they send you to potentially take part in. Um, but they can, they will uh, send you an email. So I did sign up, I signed up for YouGov a couple of weeks ago and they've been they've sent me probably 3 polls to take and actually the last poll they sent me to take was a poll on the elections and I was able to in my first poll ever uh actually you know let somebody know that I supported Bernie Sanders and I would be voting for Bernie Sanders. Um, I am not in one of these five states that are going to vote tomorrow or in, obviously, if I'm not in one of those five states, I'm not in Illinois where these results are from. So at some point down the road, if they release a poll on my state, perhaps they will use the information, some of the information I provided. So uh, I definitely recommend you signing up for you gov and the way that the site works is you earn points for answering polling questions or or taking polls that they offer you and eventually when you get you know tens of thousands of points collected you can cash those in for some gift cards so uh there's a little bit in it for you besides the ability To uh, take some polls and uh, make your thoughts and opinions known. So uh, I recommend it if you are interested in that sort of thing. The polls are usually relatively short, maybe 10 minutes um, to take a poll and provide your information, your answers to the polling questions uh, to the site. So back to... uh, Illinois. So, uh Sanders, you know, the the talking points memo poll tracker average for Illinois shows Clinton up only by 0.7%, 47.7 to 47% for Sanders. So, based on the quality and the final results from the polling from Michigan, I would say there's a good chance That Sanders can win Illinois tomorrow. And I hope that everybody out there in Illinois. Gets out to vote. Um, Everybody reaches out to anybody they know in Illinois. And uh, encourages them to get out and and make a difference. And vote for Bernie Sanders. So some um, good signs at this point in time. For Bernie Sanders in Illinois. And then if we take a look from KansasCity.com and this is a story by Steve Kraske. A new poll on the eve of the Missouri Democratic presidential primary shows the race too close to call. Public policy polling said Monday the race stands at 47-46% to with Bernie Sanders holding the slight advantage over Hillary Clinton. Among Democrats, Clinton holds a more commanding 56-39% edge, the pollster said. But Missouri's primary Tuesday is open, meaning that any Missourian can vote in it, including independents. Sanders fares far better among that group of voters, leading by a sizable 62-23%, PPP said. Among Republicans, Sanders led by 66-23%. So who's leading heading into Tuesday? Flip that coin in your pocket. PPP also gauged two other states. Clinton led in Ohio by 46 to 41 percent and in Illinois by 48 to 45 percent. Both are also open primary states, making those states tough to call as well. And so that's PPP polling shows Ohio Shows Sanders ahead in Missouri by a point. Shows Ohio Sanders trailing forty six to forty one, so five points, and Sanders trailing slightly in Illinois, forty eight to forty-five. Um so a three point deficit in Illinois. So I don't know the, the uh the margin of error in those particular polls, so I don't know if those Results are all within the margin of error, but I highly suspect that those results are all within the margin of error. So as Bernie has always said and as has been proven by the primaries and the caucuses where Bernie has won, um, turnout is critically important for Sanders. If the turnout is big, if the turnout is record-setting in these states, then Sanders has a much better chance of winning in these three states. These I think are the best states for Sanders tomorrow. I think they're the ones where he has the best chance of winning. If he is able to win all three of these states and if he's able to win them by a fair margin, if he's able to win by five percentage points or better, then I think Sanders is back in this race and does have a path to um win the nomination. I don't know if I have any details on the remaining two states. The remaining two states voting tomorrow are North Carolina and Florida. Hillary Clinton has led in both by double digits. Um, in Florida, polling shows her with a lead in the neighborhood of 30 percentage points. So that's a huge deficit that Bernie has to try to close. And I think he's made some significant gains in attempting to close that gap. He, I know that the campaign is um, advertising heavily in Florida. Sanders did a campaign swing through the state where I think in, in two days he had 20,000 people at various different events um, show up to support his candidacy. So... I think that he has a good chance of really narrowing that uh, gap. Florida is definitely one of the bigger prizes tomorrow. I don't know what their number of delegates is, um, but Bernie Sanders needs to keep it fairly close there in order that Hillary doesn't run away with a big delegate lead. So uh, we will see it probably late into the night tomorrow as the results come in. Um, How it goes But please everybody out there In any of those states Or with friends, family Or strangers in those states Reach out and help them Make up their mind if it's not made up yet Help them get to the polls Encourage them to get out there And uh, not sit this one out It is critical for Sanders moving forward And my next story is from Fortune.com. Bernie Sanders just proposed a big cash prize to make AIDS drugs cheaper. This is by Sai Mukherjee. M-U-K-H-E-R-J-E-E. Bernie Sanders unveiled a new plan Monday aimed at tackling HIV-AIDS drug prices. The Democratic presidential contender is proposing an annual cash prize for companies that help make therapies more affordable. The plan would establish a $3 billion-plus annual prize fund for firms that clear a number of thresholds. It also comes shortly after rival Hillary Clinton apologized for praising President Ronald Reagan and First Lady Nancy Reagan's efforts on addressing the AIDS epidemics in the 1980s. The "The prize fund would reward medical researchers and developers of medicines based primarily upon the added therapeutic value a new treatment offers and the number of people it benefits, the Sanders campaign wrote. Sanders' cash reward is a carrot meant to combat a system of rewarding drug makers via market exclusivity. But there is always a stick. Under his plan, quote, Drugs would have generic competition immediately after FDA approval to lower prices. Drug makers may not be particularly excited by the idea. The pharma pharma industry has tended to focus on extending exclusivity as a means of ensuring the bottom line in both domestic and international policy. But critics have pushed back on this strategy, arguing that it burdens patients. And that is a huge, huge Impact that our current uh patent system on new drugs has by giving these companies who do often spend significant amounts of money in research and development and testing but by giving them exclusive uh patents on these drugs they're able to keep the prices enormously expensive and really you know. Out of the range of the average person and definitely out of the range of the person who is not insured or who is underinsured. I've spoken before about one of the medications I take, Humira, which is one of the um, biggest medications out there. I know at least in one year it was the number one drug by total cost or total expense spent In the United States. Um, That's. My. I believe two injections a month. Without insurance. Would run in the neighborhood of $1,700. Fortunately I have some pretty good insurance. So my cost is much lower. But my cost is not insignificant. Um, If I did not have a good job. Then I would one. Not have the insurance. Uh two not be able to afford this drug, and three, without this drug, I have crippling arthritis and would be probably hard pressed to work regular hours um at any job so the the cost of drugs uh and the costs of the exclusivity that uh the drug patenting offers um can be huge for this country it's why we have the you know highest medical expenses of any uh any i want i almost said civilized but that was not the right choice of words um of any modern country out there we have the highest medical expenses and part of that is our enormously high cost of drugs almost any drug that is sold here is sold in France or in the UK or in Canada at a significantly lower price than what we pay here in the US. And that is in part due to the exclusivity of patents. So what do you do? How do you encourage uh, drug manufacturers and big pharmaceutical companies to manufacture, to test, to, uh, and the testing can be grueling. When you're creating a, a medication for human beings, you need to be darn sure that any of its side effects are tolerable. Um, So how do you encourage them? You provide them prize money. I mean, this is not the Sanders plan here is not the first time that uh, this idea has been put forward. Um, Let the government put up, put up prize money. So when the pharmaceutical companies develop a new drug, That is, you know very effective and can help a lot of people Um, let the government pay for that basically let the government essentially uh, not not with specifically this mechanism but let the government in effect buy out that exclusivity by giving a cash prize to that company that developed the drug and then provide the uh, formula for that drug to a variety of companies to manufacture and sell I think that uh, would still reward the research and development. It would still uh, provide a strong incentive for companies to develop therapies that are needed for a a wide variety of uh, illnesses out there. And this next piece is from Esquire.com. And this is by Peter Wade. It all started with a tweet from New York Times reporter Amy Chozik, quoting Hillary Clinton on the campaign trail Saturday. A quote, Fired up Clinton, implied that Democratic opponent Bernie Sanders was absent when she was pushing for health care reform in the 1990s as first lady. As Clinton has discovered recently, the internet age means instant fact-checking. Whether she is talking about Bernie's record or Nancy Reagan's efforts or lack thereof to help those with HIV, the internet fact checkers have their fingers poised over the keyboard, ready to correct any claim. And this time, Bernie Sanders' Rapid Response Director, Mike Kaska, struck gold. Because where was Bernie when Hillary was pushing for health care reform in 1993, he was standing right behind her in a December 1993 when she gave a speech about healthcare reform at Dartmouth College as seen in footage from C-SPAN. An image of the two democratic candidates from 1993 and signed by Clinton also surfaced on Twitter. Clinton's handwritten message to Sanders in part reads, quote, "Thanks for your commitment to real healthcare access for all Americans." And Hillary should have known that one was out there because Bernie Sanders uh tweeted that image out in December when Hillary started to attack his health care plans but uh either Hillary has a short memory or she's uh being a bit dishonest about uh, Bernie Sanders' efforts in. The 1990s and specifically in 1993 In that footage from C-SPAN from 1993 Where Hillary speaks about healthcare reform At Dartmouth College She thanks Bernie Sanders by name uh, In that for uh, standing up and fighting For healthcare reform for all Americans So uh, you can uh, Attempt to smear the artful smear remember that line from hillary clinton used against bernie sanders when he was uh pointing out that she has taken an awful lot of money in paid speeches from some uh huge corporations she called that an artful smear because there's no kind of uh direct smoking gun or quid pro, pro quo that that anybody can really point to and say aha here is where she voted, because of that money, and I read an article uh in a previous episode around that idea, which basically there doesn't there doesn't necessarily need to be a smoking gun or a quid pro quo because part of the reason why Hillary gets such enormous sums of money is because those companies know that Hillary's going to vote in their interests because that's what Hillary believes in. That's what many of these establishment politicians believe in. They believe in the things that these major uh, multinational corporations want. They believe that is the right direction for the country. And they believe that those are the things that will uh, be best for the country. And uh, some of us, including Bernie Sanders, believe otherwise. The climate primary results. And let's see if there is an author on this story. And I don't believe there is. It's a very brief one uh, from the Climatehawksvote.com. And it is not the Climate Hawks. It is called climatehawksvote.com. Climate primary results with 22,156 votes cast. Bernie Sanders has earned Climate Hawks Vote Political Actions endorsement in the 2016 Democratic primary with an extraordinary 92.2% of the vote. And uh, coming in second with 7.2% of the vote was Hillary Clinton, and uh, less than 1% of the vote was for no endorsement. So Bernie Sanders with another enormous uh, win in a poll put out by this particular organization, the Climate Hawks, and those were the climate primary results. And this story from latinorebels.com. Bernie Sanders voted against immigration reform in 2007. Something that Hillary Clinton loves to talk about. And he was right. This is the title on this story by Hector Lewis Alamo. And I will read it again without my interjection. Bernie Sanders voted against immigration reform in 2007 and was right. Quote, I'm a strong supporter of immigration reform, Hillary Clinton stated during last Thursday's debate in Milwaukee. Quote, and I have and I have been ever since I was in the Senate. I was one of the original sponsors of the DREAM Act. I voted for comprehensive immigration reform in 2007. Senator Sanders voted against it at that time. This is where my partner, Rocio, looks over at me from the opposite end of the couch. Quote, is that true? She says. Her voice tinged with a sense of betrayal and disappointment. How could Bernie Sanders, the people's candidate, have voted against an effort to end one of the United States' major injustices? Hoping to maintain her lead in the polls among Latino voters, Clinton is trying to present herself as a more consistent advocate of immigration reform than Bernie Sanders. And in this, her most effective attack is pointing out that Sanders voted against a bipartisan comprehensive immigration bill in two thousand seven. The Secure Borders Economic Opportunity and Immigration Reform Act of two thousand seven, introduced by Senator Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid on the heels of the Democrats retaking control of both the Senate and the House of Representatives, was largely a compromise between earlier legislation proposed by Senators Ted Kennedy, John McCain, John Keel, and John Cornyn. And you can really tell that by the name of this bill, the Secure Borders Economic Opportunity and Immigration Reform Act of 2007. Immigration Reform gets third billing in the title of this legislation. It was also a last-ditch effort by George W. Bush and the Republicans to stem the flow of immigration while eliminating the issue from the Democratic Party's platform. Containing all of the DREAM Act, which would have provided a pathway to citizenship for undocumented immigrants brought to the country as minors who graduated from high school and met other requirements, the 2007 bill also included provisions for increasing border security, a guest worker program, and restrictions on future immigration. The bill called for 20,000 more Border Patrol agents and 370 miles of additional fencing along the U.S.-Mexico border. It removed 4 of the 5 family-based categories under which an immigrant could apply for permanent residency, keeping only the preference for spouses and children of US citizens. And I'm going to pause there because the way that Hillary Clinton talks about Bernie Sanders' votes, she talks about them as if they're in isolation, like the auto bill, the auto bailout bill that I spoke of earlier in the episode she said he voted against the money for the the auto bailout but didn't uh reveal that that was a small piece tucked in a very much larger piece of legislation that bailed out the big banks that bernie has uh fought against for a very long time so it's uh any time you hear hillary clinton point out bernie sanders record Take a look yourself or or dig into the uh, details a little bit more because often, not always, but often, these votes are small pieces of big legislation. Which, as I've said before, the way the Congress makes legislation these days is they create massive bills and they amend them in 50 different ways with related and unrelated items that... Almost no bill that passes these days is all good or all bad. There are positive elements and negative elements in almost every, and I will I will say in every significant piece of legislation that comes out of Congress. So just as a, a uh, little experiment here, Hillary strongly said that she supported this particular bill. So using the type of uh, logic, or maybe I should say the type of illogic, That The Hillary Clinton campaign uses when it calls out Sanders for his votes. We could easily say that Hillary Clinton voted in 2007 for 20,000 more border patrol agents and 370 miles of additional fencing along the U.S.-Mexico border, and she voted to remove four of the five types of family situations under which an immigrant could apply for permanent residency. When you express her vote in that way, it paints a very, very different picture from what uh, Clinton likes to uh, portray this piece of legislation as when she does claim that it uh, supports a path to citizenship for a great number of the uh, immigrants that are here. Um, Which it does, but it did a whole lot of other things. And I haven't gotten to the point that Sanders cites uh, regularly when he um, defends his position on this particular bill. So the guest worker program in this bill would have allowed 200,000 Latin Americans to work in the United States for two years, after which they would have to return to their home countries for a full year, before they could reapply for temporary work. Bernie Sanders supported the DREAM Act part of the bill, but he opposed the guest worker bit and the downgrading of family reunification. So did one of the United States' most venerated Latino civil rights organizations, the League of United Latin American Citizens, and the country's largest trade union, the American Federation of Labor, and Congress of Industrial Organizations. In May 2007, a few weeks before the Senate's vote, LULAC's executive director said the group cannot, quote, cannot support a bill that will separate families and lead to the exploitation of immigrant workers while resulting in widespread undocumented immigration in the future. For its part, the AFL-CIO described the exploitive nature of the guest worker provisions to, quote, modern-day Bracero programs. Referring to the program launched during the Second World War to meet labor demands in the United States, and which led to the forced deportation of millions of Mexicans, including a few U.S. citizens, from the United States under Operation Wetback, beginning in 1954. The American Immigration Lawyers Association called the bill, quote, unworkable, explaining that, quote, political considerations eventually warped the proposal in ways that would bring more chaos to our immigration system instead of the order and rationality that this bill was intended to restore. In June 2007, a junior senator from Illinois by the name of Barack Obama proposed an amendment that would have eliminated the new merit-based system after five years. The new system was meant mostly to replace the current family-based system that awards points to green card applicants with family ties in the United States. The Senate quickly voted down Obama's amendment. But then Byron Dorgan, a Democratic senator from North Dakota, introduced an amendment that would have ended the guest worker program after five years. Frank Shari, a pro-immigration lobbyist, described the Dorgan Amendment as vengeance for a successful amendment backed by Republican Senator John Cornyn of Texas, which would have stripped confidentiality from applications for citizenship, leaving denied applicants vulnerable to deportation. The Senate adopted Dorgan's amendment with Obama, Sanders, and Clinton voting in favor of one of the several quote, poison pills. That's the bill that the bill's supporters blame for its ultimate demise. And just that paragraph alone kind of shows the uh, mess that the bills become that move through our Congress. So Bernie Sanders did absolutely vote against this particular bill but he did not vote against it because of the positive elements within it which uh did provide some relief for um undocumented immigrants in our country but he voted voted against it for the uh guest worker program that he and others have likened to potentially be Near slavery conditions where people taking part in those uh, programs have um, virtually no recourse if they are mistreated by their employer because their employer can revoke their ability to work and basically uh, make it highly likely that they will be sent back to their country of origin. So, this from FAIR.org, which is the website of fairness and accuracy in reporting. And what has to be some kind of record, the Washington Post ran 16 negative stories on Bernie Sanders in 16 hours. Between roughly 10.20 p.m. Sunday, March 6th to 3.54 p.m. Monday, March 7th a window that includes the crucial Democratic debate in Flint, Michigan, and the next morning's spin. All of these stories paint his candidacy in a negative light, mainly by advancing the narrative that he's a clueless white man incapable of winning over people of color or speaking to women, even the one article about Sanders beating Trump implies this is somehow a surprise, despite the fact that Sanders consistently pulls ahead against the New York businessmen. While the headlines don't necessarily reflect all of the nuances of the stories, so how a story is la- but how a story is labeled is just as important, if not more so, than the substance of the story itself because A great many readers don't read beyond the headline, or if they do, do not read very far beyond the headline. So, uh, interesting point about the Washington Post and its coverage of Bernie Sanders leading up to the Michigan primary. Um, So, about in probably the 32 or 36 hours ahead of the Michigan primary. The Washington Post ran 16 negative stories. One negative story an hour for 16 hours straight on Bernie Sanders. So that's the kind of press that uh, Bernie Sanders is facing, particularly from the corporate or the commercial media. And uh, this from Telesur TV .net and last episode i read a story that an individual posted um which uh covered her opinions on the race and on uh Hillary Clinton and in particular Hillary Clinton's impact on the current situation in Honduras Uh, By the actions that Hillary Clinton took and the actions that Hillary Clinton supported in uh, Honduras when she was the Secretary of State. So I've got a couple more stories on this. Uh, I think this is one of the clearest and most uh, decisive stories on Hillary Clinton's foreign policy and her decision making and it's negative impact around the world and there are other good and strong examples like Libya and Iraq um but i think this uh the story of Honduras the more i read about it the more i see it fits neatly into um Clinton's history and Clinton's belief system based on her prior actions and and her prior positions Um, And I think it tells us a lot about what a Clinton presidency would bring us. And this is from TelesurTV.net. And I don't see an author on this. Let me scan down to the bottom real quick. See if there's an author at the bottom. Yeah, Heather Geist, G-I-E-S is the author here. U.S. Democratic Party presidential hopeful Hillary Clinton has built her campaign around her self-proclaimed dedication to fighting for women's rights, as well as her superior experience in the realm of foreign policy. Many feminists have disputed that, and the woman on the receiving end of her foreign policy, in particular Latin America, are even less likely to see the former Secretary of State as a champion of their rights. For Honduran feminist artist Melissa Cardoza, Clinton's policy in Central America has shown her true colors as an instrument of empire, representing patriarchal, not-feminist, ideology. Quote, as is well known, she supported the coup d'etat in my country, which has sunk a very worthy and bleeding land further into abject poverty, violence, and militarism, Cardoza said of Clinton's legacy in Honduras. Quote, she is part of those who consider only some lives to be legitimate, obviously not rebel women and women of color that live here and who do not, at least not all, fit in with imperial interests. Cardoza added that so-called feminists calling on women to support Clinton should be warned against voting solely on the basis of identity politics and made aware of, neo- of the neoliberal lining of Clinton's agenda. Sure, there is a very neoliberal feminism, although that formula seems unthinkable to me, but it's those who think they can humanize the most violent way of life of heinous, criminal, ecocidal capitalism, she said. In Honduras, women suffer widespread gender violence amid a broader crisis of human rights, fueled by ever-increasing militarization and impunity since the U.S.-backed 2009 coup that ousted democratically elected President Manuel Zelaya. Under then-Secretary of State Clinton, the U.S. State Department aided the coup by blocking Zelaya from returning to power after he was ousted. In her autobiography, Hard Choices, Clinton admits that she used her power to bring pro-U.S. quote, stability to Central America, even if it meant forgetting about democracy. Quote, We strategized on a plan to restore order in Honduras and ensure that free and fair elections could be held quickly and legitimately, which would render the question of Zelaya moot, Clinton wrote. wrote. Those, quote, free and fair elections entailed a media blackout, targeted assassinations of anti-coup leaders, and a generalized and grave Deterioration of human rights ahead of the polls No international institutions monitored the elections. Nisa Medina of the Honduran Women's Rights Center told Telesur that the coup has had a lasting impact on the human rights situation in the country, particularly with respect to women. Quote, The 2009 coup had repercussions for sexual and reproductive rights for Honduran women, said Medina. She says that she doesn't want to be partisan in terms of U.S. electoral politics, but she does wish to shed light on the impact U.S. politics has had on women, living in Latin America. Quote, As a member of a feminist organization severely affected by the support of the U.S. for militaristic policies of recent governments, I must say that it is important that voters take the time to do a critical structural analysis of all of the information in the campaign proposals and previous actions of those running for president, she said. Quote, United States support for military invasive Militarily invasive policies in other countries has a negative impact on the women in those countries. Cardoza agreed that Honduran women have suffered gravely from U.S. policies, including those pursued by the State Department under Clinton's watch. Quote, the current dictatorship under Hernandez is part of her creation said Cardoza. The misery doesn't just affect women with more brutality, but also our bodies are exposed to the militarist ideology with with which they uphold poverty and kill us, to the conservative fundamentalism with which they deny the exercise of our sexual autonomy, and to the possibility of being creative people and not just workers for their factories and way of life." Cardoza added that the actions of, quote, Clinton and her her white, rich, neoliberal, and patriarchal friends has created a situation in Honduras that has pushed movements to be more radical in their struggles to resist oppression. In Honduras, the femicide rate increased by over 260% between 2005 and 2013. In 2014 alone, at least 513 women were murdered, and in 2015, one woman was killed every 16 hours. The country earned the moniker of, quote, murder capital of the world in the wake of the 2009 coup, with 15 assaults per month now perpetrated against journalists, human rights defenders, and the political opposition. Honduras is also now considered the most dangerous place in the world for defenders of the environment. What's more, the coup ushered in neoliberal policies of sweeping privatization, making Honduras, quote, open for business to U.S. and transnational companies at the expense of workers and the self-sufficient economy. And this is, I think, a key element of Clinton's foreign policy and a key element of the historic foreign policy of the U.S. uh, vis-a-vis Um, Central America and South America, but uh, we have a long, long, almost unending history in Central America and in South America of deposing elected leaders and imposing uh, military rule or dictatorships that are friendly to U.S. businesses it's happened in country after country after country in Central America. And we uh, we wonder why the people there and elsewhere around the world where we've taken similar actions um, don't uh, love our government. But in any event, on to, I believe I have another story uh, about... Honduras as well Um, this is from Huffington Post at uh, huffpost.com this is by Robert Naiman N-A-I-M-A-N on June 28 2009 when Hillary Clinton was secretary of state democratically elected Honduran President Manuel Zelaya was overthrown by a military coup The United Nations, the European Union, and the Organization of American States condemned the coup, and on July 5, Honduras was suspended from the OAS. Under long-standing and clear-cut U.S. law, all U.S. aid to Honduras except democracy assistance, including all military aid, should have been immediately suspended following the coup. On August 17, no, on August 7, 15 House Democrats, led by Representative Raúl Grijalva, sent a letter to the administration which began, quote, As you know, on June twenty-eighth, two 2009, a military coup took place in Honduras, and said, quote, The State Department should fully acknowledge that a military coup has taken place and follow through with the total suspension of non-humanitarian aid as required by law. Why wasn't USAID to Honduras suspended following the coup? The justification given by Clinton's State Department on August 25 for not suspending USAID to Honduras was that the events in Honduras were murky and it was not clear whether a coup had taken place. Clinton's State Department claimed that State Department lawyers were studying the murky question of whether a coup had taken place. This justification was a lie, and Clinton's State Department knew it was a lie. By July 24, 2009, the State Department, including Secretary Clinton, knew clearly that the action of the Honduran military to remove President Zelaya on June 28, 2009, constituted a coup. On July 24, a U.S. ambassador to Honduras, Hugo Lawrence, sent a cable to top U.S. officials, including Secretary of State Clinton, with the subject— Quote, Open and shut the case of the Honduran coup, thoroughly documenting the assertion that, quote, there is no doubt that the events of June 28 quote, constituted an illegal and unconstitutional coup. Why did Clinton's State Department lie and pretend that it was murky whether a coup had taken place when it knew the fact that a coup had taken place was clear cut? Because Hillary Clinton wanted the coup to succeed. Clinton's strategy to help the coup succeed, as revealed in her emails, was delay, delay, delay. Delay any action that might help force the coup government to stand down and allow the democratically elected president to be restored to office. As she later confessed in her book, her goal was to, quote, render the question of President Zelaya moot. This is exactly the same tactic we took in Haiti when there was a coup against uh, uh, against President Aristide, and Aristide was forced to flee from Haiti. In fact, I believe we uh, helped Aristide flee from Haiti and also helped prevent Aristide from returning to Haiti where he was rightfully elected president. Um, back to the story. Today, the rule of law in Honduras still has not recovered from the coup that Secretary Clinton helped enable. That's a key reason that refugees have fled Honduras to the United States, only to find themselves hunted by the Democrat by the Department of Homeland Security raids that Secretary Clinton supported before she opposed them. President Obama is going to visit Cuba, and that's a wonderful. Ending the embargo and normalizing relations with Cuba is a key step the U.S. must take to restore normal relations with Latin America. But it's not the only change we need. There is a 200-year legacy of U.S. military intervention and subversion in Latin America that didn't stop on January 2009. It's hard to have confidence that former Secretary Clinton will end this legacy as president when she used her power as Secretary of State to turn the clock backwards, I think that is a amazingly powerful representation of what uh, Clinton's foreign policy will look like. It's it's what Clinton has stood for um, around the world is uh, deposing leaders that. Are not entirely supportive of u s business interests and allowing brutal dictators to take their place or allowing a vacuum and, and no uh reasonably um, stable government to move in and take the place of those uh deposed And creating, you know, enormous tragedies in place after place around the world. And this next story is from TheIntercept.com by Zaid Jelani. Bernie Sanders upset in the Michigan primary Tuesday can be attributed in part To a strong showing in Dearborn, Michigan, which has the largest concentration of Arab Americans in the nation. Sanders won almost 60% of the vote there, besting rival Hillary Clinton. Apparently, something about Sanders resonated with residents. Quote, Believing in something unpopular and fighting for those things is true courage and bravery. I feel personally connected to his message of humanism and peace. Mason Hanawi, a high school student and first-time Dearborn Heights voter, told The Intercept about his support for Sanders. Quote, I know a lot of Muslim people my age, also taken by his message of peace and his welcoming tone. An analysis by the Dearborn-based Arab American News showed that heavily populated Arab neighborhoods in the city went overwhelmingly for Sanders. 210 to 101 in southern Salina, a Yemeni-American neighborhood, for example. The paper estimated that quote Arab Americans voted 2 to 1 for Sanders in almost every East Dearborn precinct. East Dearborn is where most Arab Americans live. The win came following a sustained following sustained outreach by the Sanders campaign aimed at Arab and Muslim Americans in Dearborn and elsewhere. In October, Sanders shared an emotional moment with a Muslim college student who asked him to stand up to Islamophobia. He invited her up to the stage and cited his own background as a grandson of Holocaust victims, as informing his views on bigotry, telling her, quote, There is a lot of anger being generated, hatred being generated against Muslims in this country. If we stand for anything, we have got to stand together and end all forms of racism. And this article is from TheNation.com by William Greider. Young people are the good news of 2016. They see the stressful realities of American life more clearly than their elders and are rallying around the straight talk of Bernie Sanders. Meanwhile, the big hitters back in Washington politics are working on an ugly surprise, not just for the kids, but for all of us. Another monster tax break for U.S. multinational corporations. The bad news is that key leaders of the Democratic Party, including the president, are getting on board with Republicans, despite some talk about confronting income inequality. Influential Democrats intend to negotiate with Republican counterparts on the size and terms of post-facto tax, quote, forgiveness for America's globalized companies. This is real money they're talking about, a giveaway of hundreds of billions. Why haven't voters heard about this from candidates? Because Republicans and Democrats both know it would make angry voters even angrier. The major multinationals complain about a tax problem that most citizens would love to have for themselves. Thanks to a loophole in the tax code, the companies do not have to pay U.S. taxes on profits they've earned in foreign countries until they bring the money home to American shores. Altogether, the globalized U.S. companies have accumulated $2.1 trillion in untaxed profits, most of it parked in overseas tax havens. The multinationals are waiting for Congress to forgive them their debts. That is, the U.S. companies insist they won't bring the money home and pay the taxes they owe until Washington Paul's steeply reduced the rate to bargain basement levels. That's tax forgiveness on a grand scale what the companies also demand is permanently lowered tax rate on their future earnings some leading republicans advocate eliminating taxation of foreign corporate income entirely imagine if average citizens were given this kind of discretion for their personal income tax you could tell the irs you regard your tax liability as unfair so you're not going to pay it until congress enacts a lower rate don't try this dodge in real life They will come after you. Many politicians are attracted to cutting a deal with the corporations because they're in a bind of their own. Given the intense budget battles, the House and Senate often can't even agree on how to pay for essential government projects and services. The tax forgiveness scheme could bring home hundreds of billions in supposedly new revenue for those vital projects. For cynical politicians, the deal looks like a twofer. You can please constituents with infrastructure projects and reward corporate patrons in the same stroke. In reality, of course, the revenue loss from the giveaway will inevitably be dumped on other taxpayers, either by cutting domestic programs or running up the national debt. To put it plainly, this trade off is certain to worsen income inequality because the money goes to the very people Shareholders and corporate execs who have already done fabulously well at the expense of other Americans. Senator Elizabeth Warren, as she often does, found the right words to describe this transaction. She called it, quote, a giant wet kiss for the tax dodgers. Warren and Senator Sanders have repeatedly charged that the system is rigged. What's particularly outrageous about this new rigging of the tax code is that even though the politicians are engineering it in the midst of a presidential election, most voters don't have a clue. The facts are obscure but not secret. Even so, political reporters covering the candidates have shown little interest in alerting the public. I blame them for failing democracy. Campaign reporters are horse-race junkies who typically take their cues from political insiders, not untutored citizens. The politicians are actually plotting a repeat plundering. Back in 2004, when President George W. Bush was running for re-election and John Kerry was his opponent, they agreed upon a similar proposition. Both were snookered, but it was ordinary citizens who who were really screwed. The measure was called the American Jobs Creation Act of 2004, and companies repatriated $362 billion at a reduced tax rate of 5.25%. Then, they walked away from the jobs promise. In fact, the largest companies killed jobs after they got the money. Some 60,000 jobs, moving them overseas to low-wage, low-tax countries. They use their windfall to boost stock prices and thereby enrich investors and CEOs. Now the same crowd is planning a rerun, counting on the wayward press to maintain public ignorance. Warren's tax dodgers are not what are usually thought of as scumbag scumbag swindlers. They are the blue chips of American capitalism, drawn from the high tech and pharmaceutical sectors, as well as the biggest barons of Wall Street. Let's name some names. The top ten multinationals that would reap the largest boodle from this deal are Apple, Microsoft, Oracle, Citigroup, Amgen, Qualcomm, JP Morgan Chase, Gilead Sciences, Goldman Sachs, and Bank of America. According to Citizens for Tax Justice, these 10 collectively owe $162 billion in unpaid taxes on the $550 billion in profits they've parked offshore. Under the proposal offered by President Obama, the standard statutory tax rate of 35% would be reduced to a one-time bargain basement rate of 14%. This would enable the fortunate 10 to save $97 billion. An alternative Republican proposal would raise the giveaway to $122 billion. The entire list of winners, the scores of multinationals holding $2.1 trillion in offshore profits, could save as much as $400 billion in taxes owed if bipartisan Washington gives in to the corporate bandits. Citizens may be wary of Washington's scandals, but this squeeze by the multinationals is a grand champion of corrupted democracy. It looks like bank robbery at gunpoint. The corporates are saying to Congress, give us the money. Or we'll pull the trigger. The trigger in this case is a threat to use another notorious tax loophole called quote, corporate inversion. A company can decide for tax purposes to drop U.S. citizenship and move to Ireland or some other inviting nation by arranging a merger or acquisition by a foreign corporation. Some 50 corporations, most recently Pfizer, the giant drug maker, have announced that they are using this device to escape U.S. tax obligations. They don't actually have to move factories or headquarters. It's a tax gimmick. A lot of this offshore money is actually deposited in U.S. banks. But the threat of corporate flight is now made explicit by the lobbyists and cheerleaders. If Congress doesn't give them a sufficiently generous tax break, some of the biggest corporate names may decide to leave. Instead of repealing the outrageous loopholes, gullible members of Congress now claim they have no choice but to appease the bankers, the techies, and the drug makers. If average citizens learned about this grand heist, they would be reaching for pitchforks. People who love Donald Trump would be especially troubled to learn that Trump has, in his way, endorsed what the corporate bandits are after. He tells audiences that corporate inversions are a terrible, terrible problem. But not to worry. His good friend Carl Icahn, the notorious corporate raider, knows how to fix the problem. What Trump neglects to say is that Icahn's solution is for Congress to enact the monster tax reduction the multinationals are demanding. The only way to stop the inversions, Icon insists, is to give the companies what they want. Furthermore, he's created a $150 million super PAC that he intends to use to punish members of Congress, quote, responsible for this ridiculous and unconscionable situation. Icon says, the, in, says in broad daylight what the money guys usually say behind closed doors. The informal politics surrounding this issue proceeds more like a silent auction than a public campaign. Starting last summer, various Washington players began posting bids on how much tax revenue they think Congress should pay in ransom to the bandits. Not until the lobbyists settle on the correct bid will the companies allow Congress to proceed with the legislation. Nothing demonstrates the corporate stranglehold over both political parties more starkly than this maneuver. So that is a significant part, but not all of this particular story. So there is uh, more to read about this uh, potential legislation in Congress um, coming up to give enormous tax breaks to the largest corporations in our country. So check out the rest of that. That is from thenation.com. That is by William Greider. It is called Democrats and Republicans are quietly planning a corporate giveaway to the tune of $400 billion. And finally on this episode from ArabAmericanNews.com, we endorse Bernie Sanders. Presidents serve for four years, but this presidential election will likely shape the future of the United States for generations to come. Your vote will help draw Washington's policies on critical issues for the near and remote future. A Supreme Court nomination, the United States' role in the Middle East, the approach to the global refugee crisis, the fate of millions of undocumented immigrants, and environmental guidelines that could affect our very existence on this planet. On the Democratic side, former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton is facing an unlikely challenge from Senator Bernie Sanders. The Arab American News endorses Sanders. With the senator from Vermont, we have a historic opportunity to elect a principled politician who has remained true to his message from the days he was protesting with the civil rights movement to the day he proclaimed himself a democratic socialist on national television while running for president. Sanders has served as a U.S. representative from 1991 to 2007. He has since been representing Vermont in the Senate. In his early years, he was a social justice activist. Washington did not sway Sanders away from his ideals. In the House and the Senate, Sanders introduced and supported countless pieces of legislation to regulate Wall Street and protect the environment from predatory corporate greed. Most Arab Americans are hard-working, middle-class families. The concentration of wealth in the top 1% of the nation's richest people impacts this community directly. Sanders' tax reforms and promised social programs would level the playing field for Americans to realize the American dream. Sanders stands for racial justice and has unequivocally condemned Islamophobia. As a young community, education is essential to our future and well-being. Sanders' focus on making college affordable will help our youth fulfill their potential. On foreign policy, Sanders has shown the most even-handed approach to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Although his views on this issue do not rise to the aspirations of Arab-Americans— who would like to see Washington take a clear stance against Israel's human rights abuses and occupation of Palestine land, Palestinian land, Sanders' call for ending the blockade on Gaza is a step in the right direction. His condemnation of Israeli attacks that kill Palestinian civilians is unprecedented by any major presidential candidate. Sanders is a Jewish American. This newspaper and the community at large do not have a bias against anyone's ethnic or religious affiliation. Ideas are what matters. The senator has been outspoken in his criticism of the broken campaign finance system. When a handful of billionaires decide the outcome of elections, it goes against the basic democratic principle of one person, one vote. This country's unjust foreign policy in the Middle East has been driven by special interest groups that exploit the influence of money on Washington. A fair economic system will bring more balance to all aspects of American politics, including foreign policy. Sanders has not only been an opponent of the disproportionate political power of big corporations, he has refused their money. The average donation to Sanders' campaign in the last three months of 2015 was $27. His foreign policy will not be dictated by a military-industrial complex that promotes war for profit, or Christian Zionist groups that lobby Washington to support Israel for theological reasons. Sanders was on the right side of history when he voted against the Iraq War in 2002 as a U.S. representative. Clinton was in favor of the invasion and voted for it as a senator. The war led to the destruction of Iraq and the rise of ISIS and extremism. The newspaper does not trust Clinton's interventionist inclinations. As Secretary of State, she was a leading force behind the bombing campaign in Libya in 2011. There is no doubt that Muammar Gaddafi was a dictator who abused his people, but the hasty war on Libya, which was dubbed as humanitarian, led to that North African nation becoming a failed state. Now two governments and countless militant groups, including ISIS, rule the once stable country. Given the disastrous options on the Republican side and the fact that Donald Trump is most likely to win the GOP nomination, many people who would prefer Sanders politically are siding with Clinton because she appears more electable. A CNN poll revealed this week that Sanders would beat Trump by a bigger margin than Clinton. According to the poll, the former Secretary of State would top Trump 52 to 44 percent. Sanders would beat the real estate mogul 55 to 43 percent. The survey showed that Senator from Vermont would also win comfortably against either Senators Marco Rubio or Ted Cruz. Even if Sanders does not succeed in winning the nomination, it is important for our community to vote for him so he can promote his platform and communicate his ideas to the American public, taking his campaign all the way to the Democratic Convention. Between now and then, anything is possible. Arab Americans need to stand for principles In Sanders, we have a principled politician who is showing strength and courage in his campaign. Vote on principles. Vote for Sanders. And that was the Arab American News. And I think that uh, endorsement had some sway in the Michigan primary, where we heard Bernie Sanders won the Arab American Votes Uh, in many areas there by about a two-to-one margin. So that will wrap up this episode of Bernie 2016. If you want to reach out to me, you can send me a message at BernieUS2016 at gmail.com or you can follow me on Twitter at BernieUS2016. And I'd like to thank the two individuals that went onto iTunes and rated this podcast Uh, Thank you very much for supporting the podcast by giving it a rating on iTunes. And if you want to see the back catalog of podcasts, go to bernie-2016.com. On there, you'll also find my Flipboard magazine where I have a very large collection of stories on Bernie Sanders and on the race for the Democratic nomination. Heading out this evening, we are going to listen to The Burn by Bert DeBard, which you can find on YouTube. Look for Bert DeBard, all one word, B-E-R-T-D-A-B-A-R-D. This is The Burn. Thanks for listening.
2: They've got Carson, Bush, and Christie. They've got Rubio and Trump. They've got Paul and Fiorina, they've got Cruz out on the stump They've got Kasich and Santorum. they've got Huckabee as well But none of them make sense, you know damn well These are candidates for president who pander to the rich Who suck up to billionaires and leave us all down in the ditch They've got super PACs aplenty that cause us great concern Who do we need? We need the burn. Now Clinton and O'Malley are good and decent folk far better than Republicans it's true and that's no joke but they have each got super PACs we are so sad to learn that is why we need the burn. Bernie Sanders doesn't pander doesn't lie and doesn't talk, He won't fudge or wink and play the game, won't welch or double talk. He won't back down from an issue. What you see is what you get. Should he be our president? You bet. Our infrastructure's crumbling, as you can plainly see. And college debt is crippling. Higher ed, it should be free. And who can make a living on what minimum wage we'll earn? Who do we need? We need the burn. We are desperate for a genuine truth-teller. Someone who's not a sleazy, smoke-filled, backroom cretin' and cave dweller. There is no one like the burn, no one in the world. There is nowhere you can turn and find anyone like the bird.